<clears throat> Scripture reading is from Hebrews 3, verses 4 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in, his, in all his house as a servant. For a testimony of those things which would be yet spoken afterwards. But Christ is the son of his, over his own house, whose house we are, we are, if we hold fast to confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Good morning. Glad to see you each here this morning. We've got a lot of visitors as I'm looking out about, uh, about the auditorium this morning. Uh, we are glad that you're here and hope that you're made to feel welcome. Uh, members, if you would, uh, look around you and see who uh, you don't recognize. And visitors, if you wouldn't mind, do me a favor. There's a blue card in the back of the pew in front of you. If you wouldn't mind to grab that card and just fill it out, you can leave it there on the pew if you'd like or hand it to one of the members that you uh, know as a member or just leave it on the pew. Uh, we'd love to have a record of your attendance. Even more so, we'd love to have, uh, have you stick around for a few minutes after our services, we can get a chance to get to know you. I'd like to begin this morning with a word of prayer, if that's okay. Um, I feel like it's right that we collectively as a congregation acknowledge the landmark decision that was made on Friday by the Supreme Court. It's something that a lot of prayers have been offered on behalf of, but certainly we as a church family ought to be giving God glory and uh, giving him thanks for uh, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Would you join me in prayer this morning as we begin? Our holy God, our Father in heaven, we come bowing down before you once again, thankful so much for your great love towards us, thankful for your great mercy, and thankful, Father, so much for the opportunity to live in such a country as we have a voice in the government, as we have a voice in the things that go on. And God, it may not be the voice that we want, it may be a voice that we feel like falls on deaf ears sometimes, but we're so thankful, Father, that we have an uh, ear that's always bowed to us, an ear that's sovereign over the American government, an ear, God, that is working all things according to your purpose. We're so thankful, Father, that you are still sovereign, still ruler over the kingdoms of men. And God, we give you all glory and we give you all praise this morning. And God, we come to you with such thankful hearts for overturning that 1973 decision that God has cost 63 million to be ripped from their mother's wombs. 63 million souls, God, that have been... Uh, snuffed out due to man's convenience, due to man's pride, due to man's arrogance. And God, we know that the overturning of this Supreme Court decision doesn't put anybody in a right relationship with you. We know, God, that man's dictates don't dictate salvation for individuals. But God, we pray for opportunities to share the gospel through this decision. We pray, God, that you would help us as we as a country, as a church family, continue to pray for our nation. God, we are concerned for our nation. Not only the decisions that are made, but Father, more importantly, the moral conscience. And God, this is a step in the right direction, we feel like, but we know that you, God, see you all. And we pray that you continue to work in our country for good as we continue to intervene on behalf of our country. We know the righteousness exalted nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And God, this has been a sin that's gone on for so many years. We pray that you would defeat evil organizations such as Planned Parenthood, that you would destroy them, that you would crush them to dust, Father, and the things that they offer and the false hope that they give and the false comforts that they promise because they know, we know, God, that you are the one that can only give comfort. 
And once again, Father, with this, may we look around, may we see the souls that are hurting and suffering. May they be obvious to us, Father, more obvious because of this decision. And may we strive, God, to meet those needs with only what your son Jesus can provide. Thank you, God, so much. Thank you for all you've done, for all you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I know that a number of you are not going to be able to be here uh, because of work, because of other commitments uh, for our Vacation Bible School, but I wanted to introduce and talk about the topic for study for which we're uh, about to engage here beginning tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., our kids are going to come, they're going to sing some songs, they're going to learn some lessons about what it means when God builds a building. There have been so many people over the course of human history that have tried and have failed, certainly, to capture who God is and capture the glory and grandeur of trying to reach out and trying to touch him. First one that comes to mind is Michelangelo. Michelangelo spent five years on his back trying to paint the top of the Sistine Chapel. For five years, he carved three, or painted 343 different characters into these Bible frescoes, trying to help people to understand something of the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of God. One of the most famous parts of this statement is the creation of man, where you have God and his finger that's outstretched trying to reach and touch man, and man casually reaching up a hand to try and touch God. And we realize that even though man's best efforts, as he's tried to reach God and as God has tried to touch him, have fallen short, we have to ask, has God enabled us to reach him today? Has God enabled us to build something or build a structure such that man can have a special communion, a special relationship with him that's different than everything else? And that's the question we fundamentally want to explore is, how can a sinful man fundamentally approach a holy God? Because as God has given his word to us, God has told us some efforts and some abilities that people have had in order to try and reach him that have fallen very, very short. And so we want to explore briefly this morning the topic for Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday about what happens whenever we try and reach God on our own terms, what happens when we try and reach God with his word and with his cooperation, but also what happens, and if God has built some place and a building for us, if you will, a spiritual building where we can approach him and be with him all the time. Well, that's fundamentally the issue that Paul addresses in Acts chapter 17. You remember in the city of Athens, Paul's spirit was provoked within him because he looked around and he saw the city was given over to idols. The Greek philosopher Tacitus said that in Athens, one would might more commonly meet with a god than meet with a man. As you're traveling down the street, you would come to different kinds of shrines and altars because men were trying to reach out and touch him. And Paul, in his fundamental aspect on this unknown God, his sermon on this unknown God, tells them he, man tries to reach as if he's going to grope for him in the darkness. He says, but God is not far from each one of us. God is not far from each one of us. And I think that you're going to see that beauty as we discuss point number three. Let's talk first, beginning in Genesis chapter 11, about what happens when man tries to build without God. What happens when man tries to build without God? And in each one of these sections, we're gonna look at a foundation, a basis for which what they're doing and what they're, what they're building. Then we're going to look secondly at not just the foundation, but also the building that's built, and then also the consequences or the results. So the foundation, the building, and then the results. Let's begin this morning talking about Babel's foundations. 
from everything that the Bible reveals about the building that they built, the Tower of Babel, the foundation was the Word of God, but the Word of God being rejected. Look back at, uh, at Genesis chapter 9, verse 1 and 2. Genesis 9, verses 1 and 2. Remember that when Noah got off the ark, what God told Noah and him, Shem, and Japheth, his three sons, is to go and to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and to subdue it. And as uh, the sons of Noah got off the ark and began to go and establish different kinds, of, uh, different kinds of, of lifestyles and different kinds of areas, what they found is in chapter 11, verse 1, is there's a difference now that seems to be the result of them looking and seeing the word of God as them getting off the ark, but then failing to go and to subdue the earth. Chapter 11 and verse 1, where we talk about the Tower of Babel, says that the whole world was of one language was of one speech and was of one's purpose. And what they're doing is saying, let's stay here in the plains of Shinar, let's stay in this one individual place and let's build us a tower, notice, quote, whose tops reach into the heavens. Now, what are they trying to do? They're not, are they trying to build literally a tower that's going to go all the way up to the sky and beyond? Are they really trying to touch the throne of God? That could be very well the aspect of it. It could also be that they were trying to build this tower, this ziggurat, this ancient uh, uh, worship site, so that God would just come down a little bit so that they could reach him and they could touch him. What the real problem seems to be is in verse 6. Let's make, make a name for ourselves, something only God is allowed to do. That could be the real crime of Babel. Nothing that they propose, verse 6, is going to be withheld from them. And as God confuses the language, consider the implications of that. God saw nationalism, warfare, clannishness as lesser problems to deal with than the apostasy of all, the whole earth being joined together in an ungodly purpose. And as they began to build, they began to rebel in that ungodliness. The foundation of their kingdom is given back in chapter 10, verses 8 and 9, talking about a man by the name of Nimrod. The word Nimrod could be translated mighty hunter, mighty warrior. However, Nimrod could also be translated rebellious one. And that seems to be the sense in which his kingdom followed in his footsteps. Notice chapter 11, verse 5. Chapter 11, verse 5. As these men, and united in their ungodliness, united in their purpose to try and build this tower and be rebellious towards God, but they're trying to reach the divine. They're trying to reach a plane where they can have God come and talk to them. The writer, almost tongue-in-cheek, in chapter 11, verse 5, says, when God came down to inspect their tower. You know, despite man's best efforts to try and reach God, God is always going to have to come down. There's never going to be a time where God's going to look up and there's man right there at his level, reached at the same point in the same place where he is. No matter how rebellious, how prideful, the Lord is always going to condescend. The Lord is always going to come down. And notice the result of Babel. It's confusion. Confusion. Chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, God says, let's come down, let's confuse their language so they can stop this monument of pride. And paraphrase, there is a danger, brothers and sisters, when we try and build monuments to ourselves to where we can feel like we're on the same level as God is. And the danger of building without God is we are using a wisdom that is not godly, that is not God-like. It is a language and a 
attitude that has to do with pride and rebelliousness. James would say, this type of wisdom doesn't come from above. He says, but it's earthly, it's sensual, and it's even demonic. James goes on, James chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 18, where envy and where self-seeking exist, there is confusion and there's every evil thing. We don't have any towers of Babel today. However, spiritually, we absolutely do. Where people are seeking to put themselves on the level of God, and as they're seeking to put themselves on the levels of God, you know what you're going to find in those doctrines and in those institutions and in those places? You're going to find confusion in every evil thing. James nailed it on the head, put the nail on the head. Pride, unity, rebellion. We mentioned abortion a little while ago. As man has built himself a tower of pride with regard to abortion, is there any confusion with regard to where life begins? Is there any confusion with regard to how late is too late to perform an abortion? Some people looking and saying, well, even though the baby may be a few moments old, born out of its mother's womb, now here's the baby, we can still kill it because it's all right if the mother doesn't want it. Is that confusion? Is that every evil thing? You bet it is. We are concluding nationally our pride month as it's been so named perhaps you've seen the rainbow flags and all the different protests uh, all the different parades and things like that that have been flashed over the news and people even on the streaming services i'm watching disney have this special section for pride and you look and you say well it's just about equal rights it's not just about equal rights because there's people that are trying to actively promote these things as they're pridefully lifting up this one aspect of it to the point where we're talking about kindergartners being able to predict their own gender. Confusion? Every evil thing? You bet. Friends, it doesn't stop. And every time a man seeks to build without God, this is always going to be the result. Always. No exceptions. Not one. You try and build without God, there's going to be confusion and every evil thing. Let's learn the lesson of Babel. And let's say I don't want to build anything in my life and I don't want to build any kind of purpose here on this earth that doesn't have God at its center. Number two, here's the tabernacle of the temple and it is built with God. Turn over to the book of Exodus, please. Chapter 19 will do. Exodus chapter 19. And we will begin right there just briefly as we do a brief flyover of the book of Exodus. After Israel had been led through the Red Sea, they are now free in Egypt, or free from Egypt. Egypt is now in their rearview mirror, never to be a problem for them again, as far as captivity goes. However, in Exodus chapter 19, what God does is he offers his hand and says, Israel, you are a people that I've brought out. You are a people that I've led out of Pharaoh's clutches on eagle's wings. And notice verses 5 and 6. Now, therefore, God says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be a special treasure to me above all people of the earth, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to extend my hand, Israel. I want you to touch me. I want you to have this special relationship with me. And Israel, if you will listen to me, if you will obey my voice, you're going to be different than all of the nations. And the purpose for God bringing out this nation and making them different is a promise that he made to Abraham, but ultimately a promise that he made that through this seed, Abraham, now the people he's reaching out his hand to, God's going to bless all nations of the earth. 
What God is doing is picking a special people so that he can build something special. Israel says, okay, God, everything that you say, we're going to do. Notice how Exodus 20 begins. The Lord commanded Moses. Here's the Lord speaking. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And what do we have immediately in verse 3? You shall have no other gods before me. Here's God showing what it takes to be a special people. And in fact, in this foundation, this is built upon what we call the law of Moses. This covenant, this offer that God made in Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6 now is fleshed out fully in chapter 20 through 24. Here's the law of Moses. Here's what it takes to be God's people. Chapter 24 is actually ratification of the covenant. If you like, it's like the marriage ceremony. Here's Exodus 19 verses 5 and 6. God has proposed to his people, will you be my special people? And people say, oh, we will. Now, chapter 24, here is the uniting of God and Israel together in this covenant relationship. Notice chapter 25 and verse 8. Chapter 25 and verse 8. I believe this is the highlight of the book, the key verse of the book. Everything all the way up until this point has reached chapter 25, verse 8, and everything after that is going to follow after what God says here. Chapter 25, verse 8, and God said, let them make me a sanctuary, a house, a tabernacle, that I may dwell among them. And then everything after that, 25 to 31, you know what God's giving? It's the plans for that tabernacle. It's the plans for how God wants the curtains to look, how God wants the boards and the sockets to look, and how God wants the tabernacle furniture, the Ark of the Covenant, the altar of incense, the table of showbread, the lampstand, the altar of burnt offering, the labor. All of these things that God commands are given in detail, and God says, you make these things. But let me show you something. The building of it has to do with full obedience. Looking all the way in the end of the book of Exodus, chapter 39 and chapter 40. This is worth it to have a Bible open to take a look at. Notice how many times as Israel now begins to assemble this tabernacle that God has commanded. Israel's brought forth their free will offerings. These skilled craftsmen have built all of the furniture and put it all together. Now 39 and 40 is everything coming together. And notice the repeated refrain, end of verse 1. They made these holy garments as the Lord had commanded Moses. Look at the end of verse 7. He put on them the shoulders of the ephod, the memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Underline it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Look down at verse 21 at the very end. As the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29, a sash of fine woven linen with blue and purple and scarlet thread made by a weaver. Underline it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 31, they tied the blue cord to fasten it above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32, this is Exodus 39 still. Verse 32, all the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. Look down at verse 42, according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did according to all the work. Then Moses looked over the work and indeed they had done it just as the Lord had commanded, so they did. And Moses blessed the people. We're not done. Look over in chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 16. Thus Moses did 
according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did, verse 21, at the very end, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 23, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 25, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 27, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 29, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Verse 32, as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he raised up the court around the tabernacle on the altar and hung the screen of the court's gates. So Moses finished the work. Do you get the importance of obedience with regard to building this tabernacle? And the capstone of this is the very last part of verse 34. The cloud covered the tabernacle meeting. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle so that Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle meeting because the cloud rested above it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is God's approval on what man had created according to his word. But everything that Moses did, everything that the children of Israel did, was done exactly to specification as the Lord had commanded Moses. And friends, the result of this was that Israel had that special relationship where God had a place of dwelling among them. God wanted to be with his people under him. And so he was able to atone for their sins, to make atonement for them, and to bless them under the law of Moses. But as beautiful as that tabernacle was, and later on as Solomon built the temple, as beautiful as the temple was, you know what the thing is? It was imperfect. It was imperfect. Well, Andy, it was something that, that man built according to God's specifications. You're saying it, it was imperfect. Yes, it was. In fact, Galatians chapter 3 would talk about this in terms of the law of Moses being a tutor to bring us to Christ. It's not the real thing. It wasn't what God was ultimately after. It wasn't the end of the matter. But in fact, it was a shadow, a preparation for something greater. This is point number three. Here is the church, which is built not with God, but built by God. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks a telling question. This is verse 13. Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, some of Jeremiah, or one of the prophets, under the law of Moses, by the way. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. As Jesus talks about building his church, a couple of things to notice. Jesus didn't say, all right, apostles, here's what you're going to do. You're going to build my, Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. Now, how did he do it? He did it by sending the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit could inspire those apostles to tell men about the kingdom, about the saving and about the redemptive work of Jesus. When did that happen? That happened after the resurrection of Jesus. This, I believe, absolutely is the foundation for everything that we're doing today. In fact, Paul would make that argument in Romans chapter, or 1 Corinthians 15 and talking about the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Romans 1 verse 4, he was declared to be the one, uh, Son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead. 
If Jesus is not risen, Paul would say we are of all men the most pitiable. We're wasting our time. And in fact, Moses, all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy, prophesied that this time would come when one who is like Moses, he said, one who is like me is going to come. God's going to raise him up. You're going to hear him. You're going to listen to him in everything. Acts 3, verse 22, Peter says this is the fulfillment of that. That Jesus is raised from the dead. Jesus has finished his construction. That Jesus has finished his building. How do we know? The building is the obedience, obedient faith in the lordship of Jesus. Flip over because the next time that we see that word church that's used, it's no longer in the future, but it is now in the present. Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is Peter concludes his sermon. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know that God has made this Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ. How did he do that? He did that by the resurrection of the dead. Peter confirms that in the rest of his sermon. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to the, uh, Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. With many other words, he's testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day there were about 3,000 souls were added. New King James adds, to them. The question is, to the who? To the to who? God is building something here. God is adding stones, if you will, to the living stone. Look down at verse 47, and the word to them is defined. Praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. In the redemptive work of Christ, as men put their obedient faith in Jesus, how do they do that? They do that by acting according to what Jesus has said. Are they building anything things themselves? No, they're not. They're entering into what God has already established, what God has already built. God has provided a place of salvation, a place where his people can come to him and have a special relationship with him. Jesus would say as much in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. In that context, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. Where's the place where Christ is? Church. Where's the place where you and I are? Church. Where do we have a relationship with Jesus? In the church. How do we get into the church? Acts 2 verse 38 tells us very clearly some people don't want to accept that. Well, I want to get into the church another way. I want to do something else to get into the church. I just want to say a prayer. I just want to do this. I just want to do this good work. Maybe just doing good works is enough to get into the church. You realize there's only one preposition that tells you how to get into Christ? One preposition given in the entire Bible, the word into Christ. And the word is given in Galatians 3 verse 29. As many of you as were baptized into Jesus Christ... You were baptized into Jesus Christ. Same word is given in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. You were baptized into Christ. How do you get into Christ? You're baptized into him. You're added to the church by God. God says, here's a piece. I'm going to put it into place. 
It's nothing that you or I do physically. It's nothing you or I do as far as meritorious works where God says, oh, well, he's done enough good works. I'm going to give him something. It's the receiving of salvation. It's the taking of what God has offered and him extending his hand and saying, be obedient to me. Put your faith in Jesus. And as we put our faith in Jesus, faith without works is dead. James gives us that. James chapter 2 and verse 26. I follow him faithfully. And the result is I get to be in a place that I didn't build. Friends, one of the things we're going to emphasize is this building, as beautiful as it is, is not the church. It's not. God doesn't live here. God didn't build this building. Now, in his providence, through the work of his people, yes, absolutely. But the place where God is, the place where his son is, the place where Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, it's the church. It's the building that's built without hands. Everything that the Old Testament was pointing towards. The fact that we can approach the throne of grace. Hebrews chapter 4. You realize that's a picture of the Old Testament tabernacle. And Hebrews saying, don't go back to that old system because what we've got is far, far better than what they had. What we've got, friends, in the church is the only means by which God is going to save man today because it's something that hinges completely upon the plan of God, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, and the revelation of what we have in our hands as a result of God's Spirit, the Holy Word of God. And friends, as we continue to put our obedient faith and trust in God, we are continually cleansed and washed from our sins. What a beautiful thought. That is imperfect and as many mistakes as I make on a daily basis and the things that I do as long as I continue looking to Jesus and following in his footsteps and going every day to be crucified, I still have a great relationship with him. God still looks at me and says, I see the blood of Jesus, you're perfect. It's not a license to sin. It's a reason for dedication. And friends, as God builds this building, the question we have to ask is, Am I still trying to build that Tower of Babel? Am I still trying to build a relationship to him and with him based upon something that's completely ungodly? Am I trying to build a monument for myself that's going to somehow get me to where God is? The answer is no. You can't build something without God and expect that God's going to be pleased. Some people... And in fact, this was a temptation in the first century, especially, well, not especially because it still happens today. People wanting to add things and saying, well, God, let's, let me build with you like the tabernacle. God, let me try and add something to the doctrine of Christ. Let me try and add circumcision. Galatians deals with that extensively and very combatively, by the way. God, let me add something that people need that's going to ensure that they're doing everything exactly correct. God says, here's my church. I built it. It's perfect. What you and I need to do is submit to it. We need to find our place within the one body. We need to find a place where we are useful to our Heavenly Father in the one body because it's founded upon the greatest foundation that anybody could have, and that's the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have the promise that He was the first fruits. We're going to follow in His footsteps if we remain firm and faithful to the end. Stay where we know God has placed salvation. Now, we are going to be talking about these lessons with our kids all this week. 
Monday, we're talking about Babel. Tuesday, we're talking about the temple or tabernacle. Wednesday, we're talking about the church. And even if you can't attend, I solicit your prayers. We solicit your prayers as we begin this week. We solicit you going out and finding those people in your neighborhoods and the children that can be affected by these lessons. We were talking with uh, some friends of ours the other day, or Catherine was rather, with a friend of hers, and she said that at their denomination, they did a VBS, and she said, I feel like we just, we, we entertained them, we had a lot of activities, a lot of, a lot of things that were going on, she said, but I just don't feel like we taught them Jesus. That's not our aim. Our aim is to teach them Jesus. Our aim is to plant the word of God in their hearts, and that's what we're trying to accomplish here at this task, and friends, we could use your prayers We could use your soliciting and going before the throne of God to say, God, everybody needs to know about the one church. There's not salvation at any other place other than the name of Jesus Christ. We're faithfully trying to uphold him, faithfully trying to proclaim him so people can understand something about the beautiful nature of what God has created through him. What a powerful and what a wonderful thought to think that we're going to be involved in this this week. If you can help, yes, absolutely, please come. I'm sure there's going to be jobs for you to do. However, if you can't, you can absolutely help by praying for us and by sending people our way and encouraging people to come. It's going to be a great week, I know. Let's pray together about it. Holy God and Father in heaven, once again, we come bowing down before you, thankful so much for your great love and for your mercy towards us. We're thankful, Father, so much that we don't have to try and reach you on our own terms. And God, may we acknowledge every single day that when we try and do we're going to fall miserably short. We're going to create confusion in every evil thing. God, we don't want to be people who add to your word. We don't want to be people who add to the things that, uh, that you've given. We don't want to be people to take away things from what you've given. But we just want to respect what you've given, God, because we realize the beauty of Jesus Christ and the beauty of his church that he made, sanctifying her, washing her, and cleansing her, Father, to be a special bride for himself. God, as we are a part of that bride, we pray that we can always respect your word, that we can always respect your lordship. We can always respect Jesus and his headship. And may you be honored and glorified by what we do here at this place. We pray, Father, that you bless our Vacation Bible School. Bless these young children and the the adults who are helping them, and especially, Father, the parents as they bring them and as they come to understand who we are here at this place. God, may our light shine so brightly that people may see that there's a difference among us as your people. We're so thankful, Father, for the church that meets here. Encourage us, build us up, and help us, God, be everything that you want us to be. Father, help us to correct those things where we're wrong, to encourage, Father, the areas where we can grow. And may you be honored and glorified, Father, by your people dwelling in the building that you've created through your Son. It's in his name. Amen. Thankful for your attendance and for your paying careful attention. One church where Jesus continually dwells with his people. The one church where you're going to find a body of people who are all striving together for the same thing. If you recognize that, it is still by that same formula, by that same pattern as was given in the first century. Through repentance and through immersion in water, you can be added to the church just the same way as those early disciples were. God is still in his building. God is still at home, and he wants you to be part of his house. Maybe there's somebody here this morning who's been living in rebellion to God. Maybe there's somebody who's been living with a false notion of who God is and what they want them to do. If we can help you with those things, if we can encourage you, we long to do that. Whatever your need is, won't you make it known as we stand and sing our invitation song.